Okay, today we now begin the discussions of Pesach. We have at least two weeks, today and next week. And uh, I want to start with a discussion of the laws of... Now, obviously, there's nothing... We can't do everything in two weeks, but at least to get a, a specific area. And we'll start with the laws of Erev Pesach. Okay, and there's much more to Erev Pesach than meets the eye than just cooking and getting ready for Pesach. Much more in terms of all these logistics here. So uh, we should get all that done today. I typed this very hurriedly this week, so you're going to be my editors uh, as we look at this. So Erev Pesach really starts the night before. Remember, the Seder is Friday night, March 30th. So, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Yeah. 30, yes. Uh, And therefore, Erev Pesach is Friday and Thursday evening. So we start at Thursday evening, and we start with the mitzvah of Bedikas Chametz, the searching for the Chametz. This all presupposes that you've thoroughly cleaned your house already. All right? You've thoroughly cleaned your house already. Just want to make sure the final sign-off that there's absolutely no more Chametz in your house. So, first we'll discuss the time of Bedikas Chameh. So, Bedikas, the, the, the Talmud says that Bedikas Chameh should be done to the light of a candle. So, light of a candle obviously means at night. So, the earliest time or the ideal time to do the search for the Chameh is on Thursday evening at nightfall, which this year is 8.30 p.m. That's the ideal time, but of course, it's not the only time. But if you, in an ideal world, that's when you would start the B'dikas Chametz. Okay? Um, and you should make every effort to start it at nightfall. Uh, and therefore, people who go to work, for example, your husbands or whatever, or you work late, you should make sure to get home from work that you can do the B'dikas Chametz at 8.30. If you can't do it at 8.30, as soon as possible. For some people, as soon as possible is midnight. But whatever it is, you want to do the Badika that night, even if not ideally at 8.30. And again, for men who have to daven Mariv, so the ideal thing would be to daven Mariv at nightfall in shul, and then go right home and do Badika's chametz immediately afterwards at home. And that's in our shul. We have Mariv just right before nightfall, and then we do Mariv, and then they can go home and do the Badika's chametz. Now, you have to make sure that you don't do things to distract you. And therefore, we're on 0.5 already. Therefore, from a half an hour before the bedika, you shouldn't do things that could distract you and you could get fully involved in them. And before you realize the time has passed by and it's 11 o'clock at night uh, because you want to be able to start it at the ideal time. Now, some of those things that the Gemara says... But not uh, they're not mutually exclu- they're not excluding other things. But let's say haircut, shaving, bathing, having a, a meal with bread and cake more than the size of an egg. I mean, a real meal, sleeping, or whatever. All those things should not be done because they tend to take longer than you expect, and you should not do that. Now, the only thing you should be doing is still cleaning. If you haven't finished cleaning, obviously, uh, that would be something you could do. And again, these restrictions are only for the person required to do the Bedikas Chametz. If there's a number of people in the home and not everybody's required to do the Bedikas Chametz, those people can do whatever they want. But there has to be at least one person who is in charge of the Bedikas Chametz, regardless of what your family unit consists of. 
So what, who should be ideally doing the Badikas Khamit? So it is the homeowner. I don't mean the legal title, but the homeowner should do the search in a in a traditional family. We're gonna say that word. It's usually the husband who does it. Need not have to be the husband. If the husband is busy working, he's an accountant, and you don't see him anyway till till May uh till May fifth uh, anyway. Uh, so he doesn't have time for it. Certainly, anyone else can do it as delegated by the homeowner. Although the woman can do bedikas chametz for all that matters, it doesn't matter. Um, and therefore, if the homeowner is unable to it or he can't do it alone, he could ask others to help him with the search. Or if he's not at all able to, he can designate someone to do the entire bedika on his behalf. All right, but there's got to be a person who is in charge. All right. Now, the Bidigas Hamas is not just for your home. It also, what if you have an office or a business that uh, you use, either you own or you rent, and you may have Hamas in there? That also requires Bidigas Hamas, and ideally it would be also that night. Now, that might not be practical if your office is downtown. That doesn't quite work. You can't manage that all in one night. So you should do those other areas, let's say the night before, or if you're not going to be in your office for Pesach, then sell all the chametz in the office, and then you don't have to check the office for chametz. But you have to realize to deal with that. Now, of course, I didn't write it in, but Bidika's chametz, really, you have to make sure that everything has no chametz, which includes the garage doesn't have any chametz, every single room in your house doesn't have chametz, your car doesn't have chametz, anything that you own should not have chametz there. Okay, so far so good? But we're still going to be a lot more, but... Two little questions. Yeah. So does the rub sell the canister for the central vac? No, you can, well, you can clean it out. Second, second quick question. Clean it out. Right. What's the point? You eventually clean it out, don't you? What? You leave it forever in the canister? Yeah. No, I, I, I sell it. Okay, fine. Second question. It's a good day to clean out a lot of vacuum cleaners, canisters, and things like that. You should clean them out. Um, second question. A locker, let's say, at work. Just to, to, to connect with this what, you, what the rabbi was saying about an office. You have a locker in a big office, and you're not going to be there over Pesach. So, so you include you that the in the sale of the chametz. Okay, you say you're you. selling chametz that's in that locker. Thank you. Okay, next, point number nine. A time-honored custom is to distribute ten pieces of chametz around the house prior to the search. Um, the custom is that this is done by the woman of the house, and I'll explain why in a minute. Now, whoever puts out those pieces should make sure to write down a piece of paper where you put them. <laughs> in case any of those pieces are not found. Invariably, as well as the other families are looking for it, not every year do they find them all. And you need to refer back to that piece. Okay, now those pieces should be less than a kazais, less than the size of an olive. The reason being is in case you don't find it, at least you don't have enough that you would transgress having chametz in your home because it's, it's considered a negligible amount. So it's a small piece. 
the pieces should be wrapped up so the pieces don't have crumbs that you have to deal with afterwards. And it should be ideally wrapped in a flammable material such as a napkin or something or, or anything that burns. What am I want to exclude? Aluminum foil. If you put aluminum foil, what's going to happen when you want to burn your chametz the next day? The chametz won't get burnt. It'll be in the aluminum foil, which will protect it. So you have to put it in something that is flammable. So when you're going to burn those 10 pieces, it will burn with everything less than that. Now, of course, the famous question, so what happens if you didn't put it down on a piece of paper and you only found nine, you didn't find 10? So, I mean, if you've done a thorough search and you must mamish can't find it, we wouldn't require you to do a, a complete search again, but rather you'll have that one piece in mind when you nullify your chametz, which we'll talk about shortly, and you'll nullify that as well. So it's not the end of the world, but that's why if you write down where it is, you'll avoid that problem. Now, of course, uh, we, we can't uh, leave this little issue without... Um, well, let's go to 12. Every part of the house must be checked for chametz. Every part of the house. We'll see this exclusions in a minute. It's not sufficient to just look for the 10 pieces of chametz. Oh, I'm going to look for 10 pieces of chametz. And that only took 10 minutes. And that was good. No. Uh, even if you've spent many days cleaning the house and you're absolutely sure that it's spotless, you still cannot rely on that. You have to use the opportunity to confirm that every part of the house was indeed thoroughly cleaned and all chametz has been taken care of. Okay, you know, after you've cleaned it very well, sometimes people put back in chametz. You clean the room, you put a big sign, Domori chametz, and people don't read signs. Even in your own house, they don't read signs and they just decide to bring chametz back into the room. That's not a... Now... However, there are limitations as to where you have to search. We're on point 13, that you only have to check areas where you know that it's possible that chametz was brought into that room during the year. Now, that makes a big difference if you have little children in your house or you don't have little children in your house. If you have little children in your house, unless there's a lock and key under constant surveillance, you'd have to check every possible place where a child could find themselves, even though you would not expect them to find them there. All right, then you really have to check. Now, checking everything, it means every, in the closets, every pocket that you have, uh, any pl- place where chametz could be, and anyway, books, if you, if you read books while you eat, and you know that while I'm eating, I'm reading a book, and chametz can be there, those books would have to be checked. Any possible place where chametz can be, um, if you go, if you make use of an attic, the garage, whatever, all those have to check. However, if you know for sure there's no, there's been no chametz brought into that particular room, you're absolutely sure you don't bring any chametz. Let's say it is the, uh, what do you call it, the furnace room. And you don't store things in the furnace room. So you know nobody ever brings chametz into the furnace room. You don't have to check the furnace room. If you have, or whatever, as, as you get older, you know, people are, you know, you don't have people, you know, putting stuff all over this. You can know, well, there's a bedroom we never used the whole year. Nothing went in there. You don't have to check it. So if you're absolutely sure that nobody ever had any use of that room and nothing went into that room, then you don't have to check that room. Okay. Another important thing you don't have to check 
you may be putting chametz in certain uh, areas that you're going to sell to the non-Jew. Those areas that you sell to the non-Jew, you don't have to check them for chametz because you're selling the entire area, including any, you know, so you have chametz in nice boxes, whatever, and then, well, what about the floor and the crumbs? You don't have to worry about that because you're selling him the use of that entire room. You don't have to worry about cleaning out chametz in that room. As a matter of fact, you can go more than you can deliberately avoid sections of the house by including them in the sale. So let's say, whatever, you got a bunch of rooms you don't want to deal with, but you know you're not going to go in there on Pesach. Absolutely, you know you're not going there. Then just sell those rooms to the goy, uh, the chametz that's in those rooms. You don't have to check those rooms. So whatever, you're clearly going to be uh, separating as chametz areas that you will not be going in those areas. You may sell those areas of chametz to the non-Jew. Okay, yeah. What if one's going away for Pesach? That's a whole different halacha. So, but we'll, you know what? We'll do that when we finish Bedikas Chametz. Remind me about that. We'll do that. When you say, when the form from the shul, are you itemizing then every room or everything? Well, if if you want to make it more real, you should. I mean, let's say, like you say, uh, cupboards in the kitchen whatever, uh, labeled cupboards in the kitchen, whatever. I mean, a lot of people just write their house. I mean, it's it's okay, but it's it's not as um, real, as it were. So let's say you know you have uh, chametz in uh, the kitchen, uh, the, the the pantry. You have kitchen, you have chametz in the, in the oh, car yeah. that you're not using on Pesach. Or whatever you just say, chametz is in these places, and and then you're fine with that. Um, now, there's always an interesting question. I didn't put it in here, but let's say you have a lot of chametz and you have one huge freezer. Okay, you have a huge freezer, and you're planning on. Can, first question is, can you? Well, what do you do? And it's a lot of chametz, and you don't want you want to sell it, but it's in the freezer. But you've made a lot of food for Pesach, and you want to. You need a freezer for that too. So what are you going to do, right? Let's say you got a big stand-up freezer, and you've cooked a few meals in advance for Pesach, and you want to put in that freezer, and you've got a lot of chametz that you have in that freezer that you're not prepared to part with. Well, ideally, you shouldn't have any chametz in that freezer. But if you, if let's say you have a lot of chametz, so you could technically. Um, cover up the area that's got the chametz. Let's say you have four shelves in the freezer. So you could technically put chametz in the bottom two shelves, put paper or whatever around it, and you put a skull and crossbones picture, and you say chametz, and you're selling the lower half of chametz in the freezer, and then the upper part of the freezer you could put the Pesach food. You know, I, I wouldn't recommend it because you could have a little child who goes into the freezer and just pulls out the chametz. But if, with, if you have an adult in the house, you technically could do that. Okay? Because that sometimes becomes the practical solution. Okay, now, the question uh, is, again, we have to really understand, if you've really cleaned out the whole house, what's the point of putting the 10 crumbs out um, if I've really cleaned the house? So there's a number of answers. One is a halachic answer and one is a hashkafic answer. 
The halachic answer is, you're going to make a blessing on this mitzvah. Now, when you're making a blessing, you have to do something after you make the blessing to make sure that the blessing is not invalid. So the fact you're going to start looking for it. Now, if you don't find anything, it's really hard for us to know if you've really done anything. <laughs> I mean, you could search, but how do we know you really searched properly if you don't come up with anything? So it might be a questionable blessing in vain. So by putting the 10 pieces, we guarantee that the blessing won't be in vain because we know there is some real chametz that will be found and will really be burnt. And obviously you need to burn some chametz. So what, how do you know you're not gonna, you might not find anything? So that's um, one technical answer. But really there's a much deeper answer that's going on. And this also explains why the custom is why the woman of the house puts out these pieces of the chametz. Now again, technically if you're a single person, and there's nobody there, well, then I guess you put out the pieces and you collect the pieces. Uh, but in a, 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 a traditional home, where there, a traditional home, there is more than one person in there. Okay, so the issue is, what is the real issue of, and the custom of putting out the 10 pieces of chametz? And the answer is because we know that chametz is a code word, is a symbol for what? It's a symbol for evil. It's a symbol for the Yetzirah. It's a symbol for Averis that we do. I don't want to get into a, a Parsha class now, but it's more than just Chametz. Okay, the leavening that the dough puffs up and the idea of puffiness and arrogance. So Chametz is symbolic of the Averis that we've done and really the whole idea of Pesach is to be able to do tshuva. It's a time of tshuva. Not only do we do tshuva on Rosh Hashanah, for Rosh Hashanah, but there is a second Rosh Hashanah. You know, the world, uh, there's a Rosh Hashanah of the first of Tishrei, there's a Rosh Hashanah of the first of Nisan, which culminates on Pesach. Pesach is a tremendous opportunity of tshuva. Tremendous opportunity of tshuva. Different kind of tshuva than before Rosh Hashanah Kippur. So what you're doing is, is before the Seder, you are searching out those last vestiges of sin that may very well be still in your home. And that's why the locha says that you check, you check it by the light of a candle and you check the cracks and crevices. That's how far it goes. Why is the halacha so pretty about the cracks and crevices? Because evil usually is not sitting on the kitchen table. Your sins, you know, last time I checked, I don't know too many of you who are idol worshippers. I don't know how many of you are going to a restaurant and eating a pig. Those those are Averis that are right out in the open. Generally, Satan does not get us to do those overtly disgusting sins. We're usually not doing that. So what are, it's those those hidden sins, the ones that we don't realize is an Avera. Oh, I didn't know that even if you're saying something true about somebody, that that's Lashon or I didn't know that. Or whatever, those little subliminal things that you know they're hiding in the cracks. So what you're looking for is Averos that's in the house. Of course, I don't understand. There's no Averos in my house. Oh, yes, there are. So now, we're going to see in a minute. So now, who is the one that would be most sensitive to the to the, uh, what's the word, the deficiencies that are in the house. We would assume it is the Akeris Abayas, it's the woman who runs the house. She probably knows the house better than anybody else. So, 
Let us say that uh, you've been talking to your husband all year long. He says, you know, you're spending far too much time on the computer. You know, you, 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 uh, you, you're looking at things that are either not appropriate or you're wasting your time in this thing. He says, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it. So then this year, we're going to take a piece of piece and put it right on top of the computer. So as he gets the constant computer, he's getting the message that there's an Avera on the computer that should be taken care of. Okay? You may put a crumb, you know, a piece by the landline, the phone. Because maybe if you feel that that phone is one that too much Lashon Hara is being spoken about. Right? And of course, you'd nudge your husband to learn a lot, but he says he'll learn a lot, but he doesn't, let's say, or could learn more. And he's got a beautiful uh, set of books that are like, they look like they're brand new, they haven't been used. You might want to put a piece of chametz in the bookcase over there, etc. Going through the home, there could be, let's say, a child that you feel the family, that maybe your husband's been neglecting. You might want to put one in that bedroom. So if you look through the house, you look for the vulnerable places that are there. So it's not just randomly placing 10 pieces of chametz. You're looking, where is the real spots of the house where chametz can, Avera can lurk more or areas that which you know there are deficiencies in that area. So that's uh, something that should be considered. To, to check in those areas, if whatever. So everyone knows the uh, the deficiencies in their own life, and that's the area. So when, when the husband or whoever is checking is checking for those areas, he's trying to really understand that there's the physical chametz and the spiritual chametz that's in that part of the house that should be removed. So this makes it a much more meaningful experience. And, and therefore, when one is removing the chametz, one is attempting to remove all the deficiencies that a person has collected during the course of the year. So that's why, and you're spending a lot of time, and you're looking a lot, because, and all the mind, all the while figuring, you know, how much time does it take for a person to think about what needs to be removed from their life in an existential sense? So that's really the philosophy behind it that's played out in the actual physical activities. Okay, and that's why we use certain things. That's why a candle is used. Why a candle is, as we said many times, it says in the, in the prophets, that the candle of God is the soul of man, and the candle is symbolic of a soul. So you check for the chametz by the candle. You check the chametz by your soul. In other words, what air, you want the soul to focus on where is the chametz in my life. So when you're carrying the candle, it's like your soul. And your soul is searching out where as the chait in my life, the sins in my life that I want to remove. And then and the next day, I want to burn them. I want to totally get rid of them. And that's the good feeling you have coming before Pesach. It's not just I got rid of the physical chametz, but I got rid of the spiritual chametz. So that explains a lot of the customs that we do. Again, we do it at night, not just because technically it's easier to spot things at night, but where do you think evil lurks more, in the day or at night? At night. More of errors are done at night, not in the daytime. So therefore, nighttime is a spiritually weak period for humanity. So in that spiritually weak period of time, we use the, the light of our soul, as it were, 
to find and check out the sins that we have. The first step of doing tshuva is recognizing you're making mistakes. <laughs> Isn't that the first step? So when you're searching, you're searching to recognize that this is the chametz that I still have, and then tomorrow I'm going to try to burn it out. I'm going to get rid of it. I mean, I'm going to stop doing that. Okay, now how you're going to continue to not behave that way, that's what the Seder's all about, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Okay, anyway, that gives a little meaning. And, and similarly, when you're cleaning for all the time before Pesach, right? Just like you have the month of Elul is 30 days before Rosh Hashanah, and in Elul you're supposed to be doing Cheshbon HaNefesh, spiritual accounting, and doing that. So that's why the law is really from 30 days before Pesach, we already start cleaning the house for Pesach. Not just cleaning the physical house, but cleaning our spiritual souls for the 30 days. Just like Elul is 30 days, so too this 30 days before Pesach. So this is really the spiritual content behind the physical things. So perhaps we think about that as you're cleaning, think about what internal things you want to be cleaning. And you know, the harder you scrub, some stains are very hard stains to get rid of. And you got to really clean it out. You know, you go to a certain place, all right, just dust this off. Oh, it's all clean. So there's certain deficiencies that only need a dusting off. There's other deficiencies that are very hard, greasy, grimy deficiencies. You've got to scrub like crazy. So that means there's certain deficiencies in our life that take a lot of effort to get rid of them. That's all that a woman's or a man's mind should be thinking of, even though you're doing mundane work. But the spiritual thoughts are far from mundane as you're doing that. So whatever you're doing in the physical world is parallel to the spiritual world. So therefore, um, you know, until the advent of nannies, that would became an easy uh, transference. Now, when you have, I'm not saying you can't have cleaning ladies, but if you have cleaning ladies, you know, so they're doing the work. They're certainly not having spiritual thoughts. But as you're overseeing it, uh, you should be still thinking about all those spiritual chametz that you want to get rid of. Okay. Yeah. On a practical level, I I think what I'm hearing you say is that everybody should really participate on some level to do that. Yes, everybody should be involved. uh, But but there's one person who has to be in charge. As it always is, there's one person in charge, and then just like you're doing tshuva, you want your children to do tshuva or other family members. Yeah, so you want them to be involved as well. First of all, pragmatically, so you don't have to spend the whole night cleaning, but you can discharge that out. If you have a number of children, you can say, okay, you can give each child, you check your room and come back to me with a report. If they're an adult, then you can trust them. So uh, give me back a report. So it doesn't mean you have to literally do everything. You have people help you with that so it reduces the time that you have to use to check that. Okay, where are we back to over here? Hmm, 16. Before the search, one should put out of children's reach all comments that is sold to the non-Jew or that one wishes to still eat by tomorrow morning. And similarly, all chametz found during the search should be put in a safe place until it's burned the next morning. Just don't leave it in a place where the kids will just get it all over the place. Now, the custom, although you don't have to do this, the custom is to use a candle, a feather, a wooden spoon, and a paper bag for the bedika. The candles, we explained. The feather, you know, just to, as you get to the chametz, you, 
you uh, brush it with the feather and the spoon is wooden, that's combustible, and the paper bag doesn't have to be a paper bag, but you want something that's combustible that you can burn it. There's all kinds of mystical things behind it. I'm not going to go there right now, but that's because if you don't have it, it's still fine. It's a 100% kosher badika, even if you don't have any of those things. Okay. It's interesting as well, the fact that we sell our chametz to the non-Jew is also not just a technical thing we do to avoid having chametz in our house. What we're really doing is we're saying, and where do you think all the chametz in my life came from? Where do you think all my deficiencies came from? It's because we're surrounded by a non-Jewish world and we, and their lifestyle uh, affects us. So we've been affected by them and therefore we give it back to them as it were. We said, here, all the chametz I have, really, it's from you. So here, take it back. I don't want it really from you. That's uh, another context of that. Now, the person conducting the bedika, the one in charge, point eight, he makes the blessing. You commanded us for the burning of the chametz. That is made right before the search begins. Even though we're not burning the chametz now, we're not going to burn it till tomorrow, but the point of the search is to burn the chametz. That is the mitzvah. It is a mitzvah to burn chametz, and therefore the mitzvah begins as we do the final inspection, which is at night. Okay? Anyone else who assists the person does not make the bracha. There's only one bracha made, and everybody else responds amen. So you usually have everyone gathered together. You make the bracha, everyone says amen, and they go out for the search. Again, when you say the bracha, you have to have in mind that you are beginning the fulfillment of the mitzvah of destroying the chametz, which will be concluded on the following day. Once you make that bracha, just like at anything else, you make a bracha on food, you can't make the bracha and then interrupt it with irrelevant speech before you taste the food, or any mitzvah for that matter. You can't interrupt a bracha before you do the mitzvah. Same thing here. When you make the bracha on the bedika, you cannot talk until you begin the bedika, unless it's something relevant for the bedika, like oh, pass me the, uh, the the candle, or can I have a flashlight, or whatever. But any ir- uh, um, irrelevant talk is not permitted. Really, shouldn't do it at all during the entire bedika, but especially before you've start after the blessing and before you started, there should be no interruption. Okay, we're on to page two. Now, although the tradition has been for historically to use a candle because that's all we had now we have electricity and we have flashlights so what does that do with the so certainly you're not going to want to use a candle when you're looking under the mattress you don't want the mattress to go on fire or you're going through uh, your closet in between the clothing you don't want that certainly you can make use of a flashlight as required Technically, you don't need to have a candle at all. But again, the custom and the thoughts behind it, the candle is very powerful. But you can use a flashlight as necessary. Um, and you could, do, you could start with the candle and then end with the flashlight, whatever. Certainly, we don't use a candle if that's going to cause any fire hazards. Now, the, the, what about the lights being on the house? It depends. If the lights are on and they assist you in the search, the regular lights, then the lights should be on. If they disturb the effectiveness of the search, sometimes you can search better when it's dark. So there's no hard and fast rule if the lights will be on or off. Of course, as we have little children, everyone loves to turn off the lights. It just creates this uh, aura, you know, and you have to give every kid a flashlight. I remember over the years, 
I have the candle, and I gave out as many flashlights as were required. And, uh, you know, it, it just creates a certain um, environment, but it doesn't have to be that way. If your sight isn't so good and you really like bright lights, certainly they can be done with bright lights. Okay, so that, that, uh, that search should take a while. I mean, you really have to get down on your hands and knees to look under furniture and other things that might be missed. And you'd be surprised as much as good as you think the house gets cleaned, you may very well find all kinds of things. Um, you, have, you, know, you, have, you, you may have missed an area in the original cleaning. So you have to really take it seriously. You can't just say, well, I know it's clean. I'm just going through the motions. No, it should take a considerable amount of time uh, to satisfy you. Imagine that if, if you, if, if ever, instead of looking for hummets, you're looking for diamonds, okay? And you know every diamond you found was worth a million dollars. So would you look or not? So again, we can't legislate how much time you spend on it, but it should be a serious search and not just a perfunctory. Again, if you have people in the house helping you, it can reduce the time. There's no mitzvah for it to take forever. But whatever. So now, when you finish it, then we say, on point 23, in the Haggadah is the text of the nullification of the chametz. There's a second one. On Pesach, you may not eat chametz, you may not own chametz. It's separate averos. If you eat chametz, it's a sin. If you own chametz, it's a sin. So we do a number of things to make sure you're not owning any chametz. Number one, we're cleaning it all out. We're hoping there's nothing in the house. Number two, we're selling chametz. That's good. But what about chametz that you didn't sell, but you didn't find? You know? And, you know, you'd be surprised what can happen. Therefore, we must verbally nullify saying whatever else I haven't sold or haven't found, as far as I'm concerned, it's like the dust of the earth. I declare them ownerless. They're not mine anymore. So even though there will be something... You will not be transgressing. This, this story always comes to mind. This was at least, let's see, 1946. Over 30 years ago, okay, so we had in our house, this was in Bathurst Manor, we had in our house one of these really old stoves. I mean, they were really old and they were really heavy. I mean, not like today, you can just push them out. This was like, you could break your back on it. They were like, you, you just didn't clean behind the stove. It was just, it was there forever. Okay. Anyway, it's okay. You don't clean it. Fine. So, I mean, you clean everything up to there, everything you see. But anyway, it's just so happened was one particular Pesach, that oven broke. The only oven we had. Call a repairman. Repairman, these big, strong bouvans, these big, strong guys. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to have to pull the, you know, move the, the oven. I said, fine. <laughs> he pulls it out and in the back underneath was a full slice of bread very old bread full slice of bread okay so thank god we nullified it I mean, no one was ever going to get to that no one would have ever touched it but i nullified it so i didn't have to worry and then you throw it out afterwards so that's why you never know that's why the nullification is extremely important you should be done right after you finish the Bedikas Chametz. You nullify all that. Then put the Chametz away in a bag to be burnt the next day. Now, it's crucial that you understand what you're saying. The Haggadah's text is in Aramaic. And in those days, all Jews understood Aramaic. That was like English. 
But if you say the nullification and don't understand it, then it has of no value. It's meaningless. So then you have to at least do what the English version is, as I gave you on, over on 25. You say, all chametz and leaven that is in my possession I have not seen, nor that I have not destroyed, and that I do not know about shall be null and ornamentless like the dust of the earth. So is the, the man of the house doing it for the entire family? Yes. He, uh, we assume that he is, uh, in, um, what do you call it, the owner of it all. Okay, I don't want to get into second marriages where, you know, they have separate bank accounts and everything's separate and this is my bagels and this is your cake. You know, if, if you have that kind of a life, you know, then you, then two people would have to nullify. We assume that, you know, there is joint ownership and he represents the, the family. Now, let's say for every reason, the husband ain't around. He, he had to be out of town Thursday night. Okay, then the woman of the house takes charge and does everything. Makes the bracha, does everything, uh, makes the nullification, and that. But one is good for the entire family. Okay, now we've taken care of the nighttime. Now we move on to the daytime. Oh, so I don't want to forget your point. So if you will be out of town, so there's different uh, ways of looking at it, but most people who are out of town are, are leaving within 30 days, within 30 days of Pesach. So therefore, you are required to do a bedika, but we, there's leniencies. The, the strictest opinion says you have to clean the whole house and everything. And then the night before you leave, you make a bedika without a blessing. Without a blessing, because you're not there the, the Thursday night before. You're away, right? Um, but on the other hand, there are many rabbis that what you can do is you can sell the entire house to a non-Jew except for one room except for one room, and leave one room where you make a bedikas chametz in that one room the night before you leave. You do not make a blessing on that, and then you uh, you you pass on, uh, you don't even have to put out 10 pieces, just check it out. And uh, since you're not making a bracha, and then you fulfilled that. All right, so basically, you're selling your house, and you're checking one room, basically. So there's no bracha, there's no pre bracha before you check, and there's no bracha because you're after. not doing it on the night of Badika's comments. If you're going out of town, most people are going. To, if you're going to a local uh, Niagara hotel, uh, which you are there Thursday night, then you'd have to make a Badika with a bracha. And uh, again, you could sell many parts of the house, but you'd have to make a bedika with a bracha. You'd have to put ten pieces out. You'd have to ensure to burn comments the next morning, but you still would not have to check the whole house. So ten pieces don't have to be put out if you. Uh, if you're going out of town before yeah. and you're not going to, have to because you're going to, how are you going to burn it? Then you have to give it to somebody. Right. <laughs> like what are you going to? So then you're not making a bracha anyway, so you don't have to worry about the ten pieces. Okay, next the day of erev Pesach, March thirtieth. Okay, so generally speaking, people should daven early because you've got a lot to do and a little time to do it. The prayers that are omitted. Uh, the whole month of, of Nisa, we haven't been saying Tachanun anyway, but we also omit Mizmor Lesoda and Lam Natseach, which are, uh, one is a joyful prayer. Mizmor Lesoda is a prayer we say in lieu of bringing the Korban Toda, the Thanksgiving offering that a person would bring from time to time. We don't say that because the Thanksgiving offering was made out of Chametz, and therefore if in the temple time they couldn't bring it, so we would not say that prayer either. Okay, now, 
Three, chametz can be eaten until 10.47. That's the cutoff point for you to have chametz. Um, any chametz, any chametz remaining after that time should either be destroyed with the 10 pieces of chametz that you're collecting for the burning of the chametz. If you can't burn it all, or let's say something you want to put in the room where you're selling the chametz, in the pantry where you're selling the chametz, or if it's really too much, you throw it in a public garbage container um, before or at the curb of your house. But that chametz has got to be taken care of. Okay, and as we put down, again, remember to empty out all garbage bins, vacuum cleaners, etc., etc. Now, there's a custom to burn last year's lulav with the chametz. Why? Because we like to do a, a, as many mitzvahs as possible with something. So the lulav was used for the mitzvah of lulav. So now it's very good dry kindling. And that's a good thing to burn your chametz with. That's all custom. Okay? All chametz has to be burnt by 12.04. And that's the witching hour that they can have no chametz in your possession at that time. And therefore, after you burn the chametz, as we we'll, should talk about in a minute, I don't know why I didn't put it in here, uh, when you burn the chametz the next morning, you say a second nullification. Oh, that's coming up, it's coming up. I'm sorry, good, 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 good. Okay, so point eight was the nullification should be made right after the burning of the chametz. It has to be done by 12.04 p.m. At that point, you may not own any chametz anymore. And that's, you say a second nullification. Why? Because the first nullification, we're totally nullifying everything because there was so little chametz left to burn. But now that you're doing, you've burnt everything, the second one is a more complete nullification. And really, this one should be said by everyone living in the home over bar and bat mitzvah. This second one should be said by everybody in case anyone may have any personal items containing chametz. Now, even if you weren't at the burning. Yeah, right. Now, traditionally, you do it at the burning. But even if you're not at the burning, you can do that. So really, everybody should say one nullification. If you're going to be busy the next morning, you're not going to be burning. Well, then you can nullify it at night. But we usually wait for the day because by then all the chametz is gone. And it could be somebody has their, you know, let's say one of your kids. He, he has his own chocolate bars in his room or whatever. So you can't nullify his chocolate bars, right? So again, we assume that usually the master of the household owns everything, but not necessarily. So on that second nullification, everybody should nullify. Now, there's many things that should be done by halachic midday, which is 1.21 p.m. Now, that point of that day, from that odd, that is already considered quasi-yom tov meaning to say the spiritual energies of Pesach are intensifying. Why? When we had the temple, the Paschal offering was brought on Erev Pesach after noon time. And whereas at 121 and onwards, people were starting to bring their Paschal offerings. And that was a huge mitzvah, just bringing the Paschal offering before even eating the Paschal offering at night. So it was already a very Yom Tov atmosphere. Unfortunately, we don't have a temple. If we had a temple, you wouldn't be in your house on Erev Pesach. You'd be in Yerushalayim. You'd already have everything organized. You're checked into the hotel, whatever. And you're lining up with others, bringing korbanos. 
there, and there were many carbonos. You brought the Paschal offering. There was the holiday offering. So it was a very, because there was no offering slaughtered at night anymore. It had to be all done there face Pesach. So it was very festive. So therefore, you have to already be festively ready as much as possible by chatzos. So certain things such as haircuts, shaves, or things like that, um, you know, uh, should be taken care of before noon, as we'll see some other things as well. As much as you can get done by noon should be done. Cutting your nails. Laundering is forbidden after the noon hour. But if you started a load before, you can obviously finish it. Um, putting clothes in the dryer can be done after the noon hour. Ironing clothes, polishing shoes, repairing garments can be done after the noon hour. But you already should be feeling there's a festive nature to what's going on. Again, the more you can do before the noon hour, the better it is. Okay. Uh, and really, in an ideal world, by the noon hour, you are already totally focused on Pesach. In a perfect world, the table set, Everything that can be ready should be ready. I mean, obviously, some things can't be ready before, but whatever should be ready, uh, can be ready, should be ready. Um, there's cu- people have the custom to read the parts of the Torah that discussed how the Paschal offering was brought to kind of put yourself in that position. Going through the Haggadah, all those things, it's a very spiritual time ready. But of course, we don't live in a perfect world, and there's lots of things that still have to get done. You finish cooking, you face whatever. Anyway. Now we come to another logistical problem. What in the world do you eat on Erev Pesach? <laughs> this is the biggest problem. Because, well, okay, you could have a healthy hummus-stick breakfast before 1047. So, uh, yeah, if you come to the shul, see them uh, that we make. Uh, we have bagels and locks and all that in the morning. So that's a good thing. But from 1047 on, you cannot have any hummus. But guess what? You're not allowed to eat matzah the entire air of Pesach because we want the mitzvah to be special for you. And if you're eating matzah before Pesach, this isn't working. And that's even for children who are old enough to understand the Pesach story. So I can't have chametz, I can't have matzah. So what am I going to eat? And for that matter, many opinions, not all, but most say that baked goods containing matzah meal you shouldn't eat. So that's knocking off Pesach cakes and things like that. There's a minority who says you can, but most say not. So what can you eat? Okay, so this is what you can eat. <coughs> well, you can eat anything that's not hummus and not matzah, which includes every fruit and vegetable in the world. Okay? That's not a bad thing. You know, there's a lot of fruits and a lot of vegetables. You can have fish, eggs. You can have that. All those kinds of things. You could have unhealthy candies, uh, whatever. I mean, there are many things, but you are restricted. In it. You could have a coffee, kosher basic coffee. You're not, not having Starbucks coffee. Well, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, you have to check with the CR with those things. But, uh, but, but, you, but you can't have any Mizonos. That's the real problem. Okay, you can have boiled or fried foods that have matzah meal. So you could have schnitzel, let's say. You could have schnitzel, even though it's got because it's not really a cake. You know, that's not not really anything similar to matzah at all. So if you're using it just as a for boiling or frying, if that's possible, that's fine. Kidneyos, which we don't eat, you can't eat kidneyos unless you're Sephardi, after nine uh, ten forty seven as well. 
even though you are eating after 4.30 p.m., which begins the 10th hour of the day, you should eat in moderation in order to be able to have enough uh, uh, appetite to eat the matzah with a great appetite because you really want to be hungry when you're eating that matzah. So, like, in other words, don't have a huge meal at 6 o'clock. Now, it's also a very strong custom for men, even though they don't go on every Erev Shabbos, to go to the mikvah on Pesach, Erev Pesach, ideally after 1.21 p.m., but you can even go after 12.04 p.m. So this is the Erev Pesach preparations in terms of getting rid of the chametz and getting uh, what you can eat. Which leads us now to the fast of the firstborn. Which I know doesn't apply to you, but it applies to any men in your life. So the fast is, is for firstborn. It begins on Erev Pesach at 5.50 in the morning. The firstborn is defined as either firstborn to his father or firstborn to his mother. Firstborn girls do not fast. Now, another some people don't know this. A firstborn son born after a miscarriage. Okay, even though he doesn't have a pigeon of N, right? Or a firstborn son of a coin or a levy that doesn't have a pigeon of one is still required to fast. Okay, some people don't know that. It's the firstborn in terms of inheritance, which would apply either way. Uh, a firstborn son by a caesarean, that's a shila, but should optimally fast. Now what happens if the father is not a firstborn, but he has a firstborn son who's under bar mitzvah? In those cases, the father should fast for the son. Okay? So that's something people don't all know. And I had a fast for 13 years till mayor became bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, but there is always a way out for this one. Firstborn who finds it difficult to fast, if you attend a sudas mitzvah, a mitzvah meal, which includes a bris, not a pidgin haben, but a pidgin haben. That's a really bad mistake. A, whoa, now I got the Hebrew. Oh, man. Okay, hang, hang on. Okay. We're going back. Get rid of the pigeon, pigeons. Pidgin. What is going on? I don't know why it's not. Okay. Okay. Pidyan Haben. Guess or even. I don't know. All right. Anyway. No, that's Pidyan Haber. All right. I'll have to fix that later. I'm not going to waste your time. Okay. Anyway. A Pidyan Haben or a Siyum. Those are the mitzvah meals that if you eat that mitzvah meal... Then you don't have to fast the rest of the day. And the universal custom is to make a siyum that they attend. The firstborn attend the siyum. And after they attend that sudas mitzvah, they're not required to fast the rest of the day. That's the way they get out of it. And therefore, the firstborn should eat enough food at the siyum in order to make a brach, achron, and after blessing. Okay, what if you attended the siyum and everybody ate up all the food and we're pushing and shoving, there's no food for you to eat? You can go home and eat something and you still are... Now off the hook for the rest of the day. A mourner after Shiva may attend the Siyum uh, uh, as, as well. Now, it, let's say you're a firstborn and you're just not able to attend the Siyum. 
Okay, some people, let's say accountants, man, they're busy. They're out they're on the road. They don't have time to wait for the sea and whatever. So ideally, they should fast all day. But if, if you get a headache from that, you don't feel well from that, you can break the fast. And obviously, fasting will prevent you from having a normal Seder. You totally won't feel well by the Seder night. You shouldn't fast either, but you limit to the amount of food you should eat. So even a firstborn who didn't ascend to see him, there's much leniency for them to still eat something. Okay, now we'll get to the final preparations for the Seder specifically. I know for many of you, you know exactly what to do, but we'll just quickly review it. There might be one or two things you may not have known. All preparations for the Seder should be made before Yom Tov in order for the Seder to start on time. When the Seder starts, the earliest time for that, I have it written down later somewhere, about 8.30ish or so, uh, uh, you should immediately when the husband comes to shul and it's dark, start. It's not time to start looking for this, looking for that. You got to start right on time because you're awake. The kids are awake. You do the mitzvah as soon as you can. It's nightfall. You start. So everything should be ready. So let's talk about some things that take time and what if you didn't prepare them. Now, moror, you know, either you're going to use types of lettuce that are permitted, well, you better make sure that if they do need to be checked and inspected, they've been inspected for bugs before Yom Tov. You know, you figure, well, I got this time. My husband's in shul. I already lit the candles. I could do a lot of things then. You can, but some things you can't do. So that inspection really should be done before you light candles. Also, many people use for more or grated horseradish. That should be graded before Yom Tov and kept in a closed container until the Seder. Now, this invariably happens. What if you forgot to grate the horseradish before Yom Tov? Well, guess what? You're not just allowed to grate things on a Yom Tov or a Shabbos. So here's what you have. If the first night is a Yom Tov, not this year, but if it's Yom Tov, it's a weekday, you can grate it in an unusual way. In other words, either put the grater upside down and just grate it with the grater upside down, or you can have the grater right side up, but grate it onto the table or on a tablecloth and not on a plate. But that's if it's on Yom Tov. If it's on Shabbos, it's a much bigger problem, and this year is Shabbos, so that's why it's better to do it before Shabbos. But if you didn't, then you, you can't grate at all. So you can only cut the horseradish into small pieces with a knife before the meal begins. And the and it can't be that small. It can't be like chop, 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 fine, fine chop. But cut them into small pieces and then you're stuck eating small pieces of mora. Okay, next. We have to roast a piece of meat for the zroa, the shank bone. It should be roasted before yom tov. If you forgot to roast it before Yom Tov, and Yom Tov's on a weekday, it can be roasted even after Yom Tov because you're allowed to roast on Yom Tov. But then if you're doing that, you got to eat that bone the next day or else you've roasted it for no reason. We can't do a work on Yom Tov unless it's for a purpose of eating. It can't be just for purpose of putting on a Seder plate for, for looks. So therefore, if you didn't roast it before Yom Tov, then if it's on a weekday, you would roast it on Yom Tov, but you'd have to eat it the next day because we don't eat the Zroa at the Seder table. But what if it's on Shabbos? You're not allowed to roast at all and you just go with an unroasted Zroa. 
And that's not the end of the world. It's, it's still, it's a custom. So you have an unroasted zroa. Why is the zroa roasted? It reminds us of the Korban Pesach that was roasted. So why not roast it? Okay, six. The main custom is to roast the egg for the Seder plate. Because that one of the reasons for the egg, it reminds us of the holiday offering that was brought, what was also roasted. But a hard-boiled egg is also suitable. Some people boil it first and then just roast it afterwards. I guess it's pragmatically better. The custom is to leave the egg in its shell while being at the Seder plate. And then the custom is to eat that egg during the Seder meal. So you eat the egg at the Seder Seder meal. Well, what do you do with it? What do you do? Throw it out? Yeah. Why don't you eat it? Not only you could, it's a it's a mitzvah. We don't we don't we don't waste food. No, no. You have an egg on the seder plate is an egg. Why you have eggs at the meal? Egg and salt. That's that's a yeah. That's that's a okay. But fine. There's other reasons. But fine, you could do that. But what I'm saying is, what, what Lynn is bringing out here, many people just have the egg at the Seder meal. Listen, my wife makes, I don't know, like two dozen eggs. She's boiling up two dozen eggs before the Seder because everyone's having eggs and, and food. But but she takes one or more than one, this is maybe four or five ka'aras, so four or five eggs, she then roasts and they go on the ka'ara. Now, that's on the ka'ara... You should be eating that one on the ka'ara. So does that go so everything on the side plate? No, not everything. But I, we, well, you'll see most of them are. The moror, yes. The charosas, yes. Because you're, you're using it, of course. So the only one not is the zroa. Oh, so that's why we're learning. Isn't that amazing? So that but the zroa, the shank bone, you cannot because it's symbolic mamish of the Korban Pesach and it would look like you're eating a Korban Pesach out of Jerusalem. Which you're not you're not allowed to. You can eat the zroa the next day, the zroa the next day. You really should. You did a mitzvah with this whole kara. It's not just for show. It's to be used. The kara mainly mainly was this is what I'm using. I need marar. I need charoses, and this is what I'm using. I'm making karpas. So yes, the master takes the karpas off the kara. That's what it's there for. That's what the arrangement is based on. It's not just a, a prop, <laughs> a photo prop, you know. That wh- Why was it there? Because that's what you need, right? So you need Karpas. Who? I'm taking Karpas. I need more. I'm taking more. Now, it might not be not enough. Certainly not enough for everybody. So, okay, we have other bowls for everybody else. But the guy himself should be using that, okay? And, but all except the Zroa. Okay, the zroa, you'll either eat the next, eventually you should eat that zroa. You don't want to waste any of the food, the shank bone, whatever you're going to use. So that should be, now if you don't, it's not an avera. It's not an avera, no one's saying it's avera. It's, 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 but it's the custom is to eat it, because that's what's there. Just throwing out eggs after you untiff, what for? Can I ask one yeah. question? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we've always like um, uh, boiled the egg and then taken a, um, a match and, and, blackened it, I guess that's symbolic of roasting. I've never actually heard of roasting the egg. Well, so what, how the, do you do that? You just put it on a pan and you put a Once little it's liquid. Boiled? Yeah. It's a lot easier because that way if you, you'll know that the, the egg is cooked. So we don't have to... We don't have to uh, no, just put it in a... My wife puts five or six eggs on a, a little roasting pan and just watches it and for about, I don't know, five minutes till it gets nice and brown 
and you've roasted it. And then also you can't, um, you can't take the neck from the the, who? the the neck from the soup and put it on. It has to be it has to be roasted, right? I've never done it. I'm, I'm not saying has again. This is the custom. These are all customs, but it should be roasted because we're trying to remember what we had at the base of Migdash. With the base of Migdash, we didn't have the kaara per se. A lot of it was you had a korban pesa. You had a slice of korban pesa if you're eating. You didn't need any. Anything to remind you of anything. You had a Korban Chagiga. It didn't have to remind you. You had the Matz and the Mor. And, and, and that was it. But now we, we do as much as we can to remember exactly what should have been happening. We should be eating a piece of roasted meat, not a piece of matzah for the Afikoma. So we don't at least have a piece of roasted meat. How are we going to even remember that? So that's the idea. Okay, quickly, let's just finish. The yeah, thing, not quickly. Go ahead. The, the Korban because it reminds us because we don't have... Um, right, so, so we sure. we have it on the table, but yeah. we don't eat it till the next day. Okay. Unless it was Yom Tov and we roasted it. Then you have to. Then you, you have to eat it on Yom Tov the next morning. Okay, you got another five minutes or Sorry, or not? I, I could. To, okay. I have to. Okay, so let's just do the haroses. Haroses should be prepared before Yom Tov. If you forgot to prepare it before Yom Tov. You may prepare it in a, the usual way if the Seder's on Yom Tov, which is not this year. Say that on Shabbos, you have a few problems because certain Mulachas of Shabbos you can't do. So if you didn't make the Charosas in time, now in time means by candlelighting, right? By uh, sunset. So the fruits should first of all be, be cut into pieces with a knife. You can't mash them. Like you would take the apples and... And grate them. You can't. You only can cut them into small pieces. The wine should be first into the mixing bowl. Then you put the cut fruits into it. And then the ingredients should be mixed with one's finger and not a spoon or a fork because you're trying to avoid doing all prohibited activity in shower. That's why it's really important to make sure that you got to prepare before. Also, a kittle should be prepared to be worn by the person who leads the Seder. Some of the customs that all married men wear a kittle, there's different customs. A mourner does not wear a kittle in the year of his mourning. The table should be covered with a white tablecloth. One should place the most exquisite items of silver, etc. The possess is on the stage. Even you're not going to use it. You have to show your wealth <coughs> that you're free. Seating arrangements and preparations for reclining should be arranged before Yantav. Some have the custom to adore the table with fragrant flowers. Because the word in Hebrew for flowers is reach, reach, reish, yud, ches, is the gematria 218, is the same gematria as the word leil, seder, the night of the seder. And as well, we know that what happened on the seder night, the seder night, Yitzchak blessed his children, and when Yaakov walked in, the scent of Gan Eden came in, and that was Pesach night. So we have the flowers there to remind us of the scent of Gan Eden that happened when Yaakov got in there. Okay, you should open all bottles, grape juice, boxes of wine. All these things should be opened before Yontif. Rinse all your wine cups. Uh, place the Seder plate with all its necessary items on the table. A bowl of salt water, wine, grape juice, wine cups, agudas, all on the table. Prepare the cup of Elio. Prepare nuts and treats to give to the children so they'll ask questions before Kiddush. If you have to make an air of Tashilin, which is not the case as you make one, and most importantly, you should take a nap. <laughs> For sure, a good two, three hour nap. And, 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 and you say, yeah, go wish. No, you really got to do that. So you have to be awake for the Seder. It's really important to be awake for the Seder. It's a long Seder. You should also light a Yortzite candle for technical reasons, because what are you going to light the next night? 
of Pesach. So you want to have that. And you can light candles as early as 6.23 p.m. If you want to light, make it in early. Traditional is 7.24. However, oh, however, I should fix this. If it's a regular Yontif, you could light afterwards. But if it's a Friday night like this year, you can... You can't light after 7.21. I have to fix up this clause over here. The candles may be lit after that time on Yom Tov, but not on Shabbos. So you really have to have everything done by 7.24. And then I got this checklist that you could look at afterwards. Thank okay. Thank you so much.